Thank you for standing by and welcome to the EML Payments Limited FY22 Interim Results Presentation. All participants are in a listen-only mode. There will be a presentation followed by a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, you will need to press star key followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. I would now like to hand the conference over to Mr. Tom Cregan, MD and Group CEO. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, uh, good morning and welcome to the uh, first half results for the financial year 2022. Uh, as you know, my name is Tom Cregan, MD and, and CEO, and I'm joined by Rob Shaw, our CFO. Uh, we're also joined uh, today in the room by David Canine, our, our Chief Operating Officer, and Ryan Challingworth, uh, Head of Treasury, if there are any questions uh, you know, after this that, uh, that we need to uh, fire uh, to Ryan or David. Uh, jumping to slide four, our, our gross debit volume has grown significantly in the half to $31.6 billion, um, and courtesy of our centennial NeuroPay acquisition, we now operate in 32 countries around the world. Uh, slide six has our headline numbers and key takeaways. As I mentioned, our, our gross debit volumes uh, were up 209% to $31.6 billion, which drove a 20% increase in revenue to $114.4 million. Our underlying EBITDA of 26.9 million was 4% behind the prior comparative period, which is a reasonable result when considering an increase in overheads in our European business of approximately 6 million, uh, particularly in, in risk and compliance. The impact of Omicron on our European malls business in December, uh, which drove lower foot traffic and sales than we would have liked. Negative net interest Revenue of 2.7 million versus the prior comparative period um, associated with negative interest rates on our euro denominated float. Establishment fees, uh, which were 2.4 million lower than the prior comparative period. Uh, and we we're implementing our remediation plan with the Central Bank of Ireland, which obviously required significant resources and management focus. So to grow revenue at 20% in the midst of a regulatory investigation talks to the revenue diversity of the business and our ability to generate revenue growth from existing customers. Negative interest rates on our European float are outside of our control, but it's not taking a massive leap to say that if we hadn't seen the impact of Omicron in the mall segment uh, and we've been able to sign new contracts in Europe and generate a similar uh, establishment fee, our revenue growth would have been closer to 25% and our EBITDA would have been north of 30 in the second half of the year, we would expect to see a recovery in, in revenue growth, growth rates and gross margins as we sign and launch new programs in Europe. We, we were able to sign and launch 22 programs in December, uh, but from an establishment fee perspective, uh, they were programs predominantly signed in the prior financial year, so the establishment fees were in the prior financial year and not in this first half. We'll talk about interest rates later in the presentation, but the two uh, recent target cash rate increases put through by the B uh, Bank of England uh, is worth more than $2.5 million uh, per annum to us uh, straight off the bat, um, you know, offsetting a large part of the negative uh, net interest uh, that we experienced in the first half. And with $2.7 billion in float, uh, you know, as at December 21, you know, we're very well placed to benefit from an increasing, you know, rate environment globally. 
Uh, and we start to migrate our two largest European customers across to the Trace platform, uh, which will commence in April, uh, and we expect to realise savings of, of $3 million in FY23. So that's starting to deliver against the synergy benefits that we originally outlined when we acquired PFS. In terms of overheads, it was the largest increase in a half uh, that we have seen. But this was driven largely by our remediation plan increases in our risk and compliance costs and three months of overheads from Centennial post our acquisition on the 1st of October. The remediation expenditure will cease once the project is completed by the end of June uh, and won't be carried into FY23. Uh, we also said last year that we expected our compliance costs you know, to increase by an annual $5 million per annum due to more resources. Uh, but we then expect future cost growth to be more in line with our historical trends um, rather than looking at FY22 first half and predicting that uh, overhead growth on a, on a go-forward basis. Um, I'd also uh, make the point that our ability to launch programs in Europe uh, in December and submit new contracts for approval has come about in part because of our commitment to the remediation plan. So the priority for us was not about expense management in the half, but making the investments needed, hiring senior executives to the team, uh, and employing independent directors uh, for the PCSIL board. Our cash at bank uh, fell to 86.2 million, and Rob will take you through this in his section. But 28 million was injected back into our FCA safeguarded accounts uh, in August last year, which we advised the market about at the time and 16 million of cash was used for the centennial acquisition. So there's 44 million of outflows on, on those two items alone. We remain very well capitalised uh, with a strong balance sheet uh, and cash position. On slide seven, uh, we've got our mall volumes outlined um, and, and gross debit volume was up you know, 26% on the prior comparative period um, and was up 6% on the FY20 uh, you know, kind of Christmas season, which was the last, you know, non-COVID impacted year. Uh, but it was below our, our expectations. And we thought, based on our growth rates leading into the key Christmas week, um, without the impact of Omicron, we would have generated another 100 million or so in GDV, um, which would have corresponded to an approximate EBITDA lift uh, of, a, of around, you know, 3.6 million. Of course, it is difficult to be prescriptive about that because proving causality solely on Omicron is, is hard to do. Uh, but that's our view, uh, you know, certainly looking at, at lower foot traffic and, and uh, restrictions in the UK and Germany as two key markets. Um, so that is our view, and the timing of it was unfortunate, uh, obviously, for the, for the second year in a row. On page eight, uh, as shareholders would know, we closed our acquisition of Centennial on October 1st, and, and moved into the open banking and account-to-account -account, uh, payment industry in Europe, which was a fundamental part of Project Accelerator and becoming a digital payments business. Um, and we see this as a, as a long-term driver of growth and value for the company. If shareholders have followed recent capital raises in the industry, you know, particularly from TrueLayer uh, and GoCardless, which raised $312 million a week before last, uh, they would see significant private equity investments into open banking in Europe because they also see the long-term growth and value opportunity. And that's the same opportunity that, 
we need to now execute on. Since acquiring Centennial, we've implemented our integration plan and agreed our growth, our five million growth investment that we previously outlined to shareholders. Um, our open banking uh, gross debit volume is growing at 30% and will be supported by some of the new business wins uh, outlined on this slide. Uh, as investors should recall, given, given historically limited capital as a, as a private business, uh, newer pay employs a sales model that works with larger enterprise distribution partners, um, hence customers such as Citigroup, WorldPay and Elevon, um, and Visa CyberSource is another such partner. And so FedEx, The Economist and Fiat Chrysler have come from that partnership, um, and CyberSource alone have 450,000 active merchants. So the, you know, they're, they're the kind of scale partners that newer pay uh, you know, has historically targeted. The upside of this distribution model is partnering with customers with significant customer bases and volumes like the ones above. But the downside is that we are reliant on those partners prioritising open banking. So our growth investment is about increasing our business development team and internal resources to be able to target both direct and enterprise customers uh, and account manage our enterprise distribution partners uh, to identify the, the, the opportunities that will allow us to scale. We'll be announcing further wins in the coming months, uh, and I look forward to sharing those with you. I think the team you know, at, at NewerPay have uh, been very active on, on the sales front, and uh, uh, you know, in, the next, in the next couple of months, the market will see uh, the, the, the fruits of that. On slide nine, we have the, the key highlights for the first half, some of which I've mentioned already. But some others obviously include the, the approval from the CBI to allow us to launch uh, programs in Europe um, under the material growth framework. Uh, uh, we launched 22 programs in December, and some of those were, as I mentioned before, were signed prior to May 21 that were, that were awaiting launch when we received the initial minded two letter from the CBI. So they were prioritised for launch, and from a revenue perspective, the establishment fees for those programs were charged in FY21. Uh, again, we've made significant investment into our European risk and compliance function, including the hiring of several senior execs, and in the next few months, we welcome a new head of compliance, uh, a, a new general counsel, and recently welcomed a new company secretary and head of corporate governance for our regulated entities. Uh, we've also entered into an outsourcing arrangement uh, with HCL in India, who will be assisting us with with various uh, uh, reviews which they can do at scale more effectively and efficiently than we can do internally because they're providing those same services for a host of banks and financial institutions. Our remediation plan is continuing and we expect to fully complete it by June 30. Um, and whilst we are still under remediation and we still have months of work to do, ultimately this will position us as a stronger business with more resources to support our future growth objectives in Europe. In the first half, we signed 33 new contracts and implemented 85 programs, uh, with six of those being Centennial. And Centennial signed 34 contracts in the first half, uh, both pre and post our ownership. But also make the point that we re-signed PCS, one of our largest customers in Europe, for a further three years, uh, which is a great show of faith by them in our European business and the direction that it's heading. One of the reasons we are able to maintain our full-year guidance today is the impact of multiple initiatives that we worked on in the last six to 12 months. 
and, and in part, this was very much in, in, in recognition that our operating expenses in Europe would increase uh, and that we would need to overcome that on an ongoing basis. Some of the changes implemented or soon to be implemented uh, include a change in our acquiring partner, uh, saving us an estimated 1.2 million per annum, uh, implementation of monthly inactivity fees on dormant accounts, um, generating an estimated 5 million per annum, uh, bond purchases in Europe, uh, which we expect will have a net 1 million uplift to the P&L in the second half, improved COGS as a result of a new agreement with MasterCard in Australia and Europe, um, contract renegotiations that will improve our margin outcomes, and processing savings, as, as mentioned before, from April as our two largest European customers uh, transition to the Trace platform. On page 10, we have our sales pipeline, which now includes Centennial. Um, and despite our regulatory challenges in, in, in Europe, you know, I think our sales team have, have done a great job in continuing to build out the pipeline. Um, and having looked at this uh, recently, uh, our win rate on the prepaid business is holding at 40%. In the prior comparative period, we signed 79 contracts, with 55 of those being GPR. So our GPR new contracts in the first half was more than 50% down. But that shouldn't be too surprising given Europe is our largest market by, by some margin and we were unable to sign new contracts in the first half. We are focused on the second half on getting back to our historical cadence of contract wins uh, and the pipe uh, within, the, within the pipeline. From page 11, we talk about some of those new programs, which I won't, I won't belabor because uh, it's probably more important that we get into some of the other uh, slides. But um, slide 11, you'll, you'll see some new programs, both in our mall space, uh, which, which is uh, probably the first uh, digital gift card program for a, for a mall's customer um, that we've implemented uh, with Cadillac Fairview. Um, uh, you've got Coinjar in, in the UK, and you've got Crosspay, which is a cross-border payments company that entered into, a, into an agreement recently with Newerpay. Slide 12, we talk about earned wage access, which we have talked about before, but it's one of the evolving opportunities we see, uh, and we have some new partners there in that segment. Uh, and I really I believe that that segment will, will be a, a significant uh, <coughs> growth driver for us because I think you're going to see a lot of disruption uh, in the way that the payroll operates over the course of the next you know, kind of, uh, you know, three to five years. Uh, on slide 13, we signed Banco Sabadell, a Spanish bank that will be utilising our payments technology. Uh, and we signed Flexi Schools, a leading Australian provider of payments for children, um, who have launched a, uh, you know, a, a effectively, you know, a, a GPR card for uh, children in, in helping them to understand the management of, of money. On slide 14, investors would know that we've partnered with Money Me for the last couple of years. Uh, and that has seen GDP increase from $6 million in year one to $45 million in year two. Uh, and is on track for $100 million this year. Uh, and this is a key part of our business plan that we've mentioned before, working closely with our customers so that their growth and success becomes ours. Um, and we're excited to announce that Money Me will be extending the freestyle product into both their auto lending business uh, and also into Society One, uh, which they recently acquired. It's that balance of organic growth from existing customers and growth from new business that drives the revenue flywheel at EML. 
On slide 15, we outlined our partnership with Aptopay in Canada, who we are working with to grow our GPR business in Canada. Um, and, and again, on slide 16, as I mentioned earlier, we've re-signed PCS, our, one of our largest customers in Europe, uh, for, uh, for a, a further three years. Moving to slide 17, investors will be aware that Shine lawyers find a class action proceeding in the Supreme Court of Victoria. Uh, in the half, we have worked with our specialist counsel to determine what our likely legal expenses are over the expected duration window. We have taken a provision of 10.5 million. We will be asking the court to have Shine deposit this amount with the court so that they can cover our costs when we win. And given this is linked to the CBI issue, we've excluded the provision from underlying EBITDA. In general terms, we consider this to be both baseless and opportunistic, but it's in the commercial interest of Shine to drag this out and maximise their fees. So we've taken the provision and investors should expect this to play out over the next three years. Um, I'm sure it's in the commercial interest of, of some to maximise you know, media coverage of the action, uh, but as it will be before the courts, and I'm not a class action lawyer, uh, I don't expect to be providing a running update on this, uh, and we'll leave it to our general counsel to meet any continuous disclosure obligations. On the next slide, we, we have a short accelerator update, uh, and, and in summary, we're making very good progress. We can now support visa programs in all regions. We launched Seamless in the, U in the USA, uh, which is our payments portal in conjunction with Interchex. Uh, and we ended the open banking account to account industry in Europe. We've continued to invest in Trace uh, that we acquired as part of the PFS acquisition. Trace has continued to scale up uh, and obviously supported 1.4 million cards for the Northern Ireland stimulus package. Uh, and in April, as, as mentioned before, we begin transitioning volume from our outsourced processor uh, across to Trace. Uh, and the third leg of Accelerator, our FinLabs investments have performed well. Remember, when we make these investments, it is about mutual access to technology and distribution, not acting as a private equity investor focused on an investment return. But within the checks, as mentioned before, we have launched our payment portal, Seamless, which incorporates our card payment technology uh, with their non-card payment technology, such as Direct Debit, Visa Direct, MasterCard Send, and PayPal. Interchex recently closed a 16 million USD raise at 115 million post money versus the 20 million valuation when we invested 18 months ago. Our second investment, Hydrogen, launched their platform in the second quarter and have over 200 customers using the platform. They, they, Hydrogen actually refers to them as tenants. Uh, so if you follow, their, their, uh, follow them in the media, that's the way they will refer it to. Um, we're steadily growing the number of users and GDV, uh, and we're excited to see where this evolves to in the next six months. Um, it, it's not material at the moment, uh, but will grow and is, is showing some pretty promising signs. We continue to work on other FinLabs investment opportunities, and we'll update shareholders you know, at the appropriate time. And with that, I'll hand to Rob to take us through the rest of the presentation. Thanks, Tom, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to take you through the financial results review, starting on slide 24 pack. Um, as Tom mentioned in the highlights, the results of the first half of the financial year have delivered strong GDV growth. We're up 209%. We've seen organic growth in all segments and the acquisition growth as we consolidated the Centennial Group from the 1st of October 2021. We've also seen revenue growth of 20% over the prior comparative period with growth in all segments. 
Organic revenue growth offset low interest revenue. It's been a feature through the first half and also delayed establishment fee revenue in our Irish regulated businesses um, and a significant increase in our overheads which we put on to address concerns raised by the Central Bank of Ireland at the late financial year, last financial year. The consolidation of Centennial contributed 2.7 million of revenue and $200,000 of EBITDA, so 86% of the first half revenue growth was organic in nature. It, it's been a challenging six months and the results are kind of really further evidence of the resilience of the EML business model. So, I mean, gross debit volume was up to 31.6 billion. Uh, it's a record result for the group, and it includes uh, 19.5 billion from Centennial. As I say, it was only consolidated for three months of the year from the 1st of October. Volumes translate to revenues at different rates depending on the segment, but the GDV volumes indicate demand for our payment services. Uh, and in the period, we saw both the organic growth in all segments, uh, which contributed 1.9 billion of GDV growth or it's 18% growth on the PCP alongside that acquisition growth. So it's not all acquisition growth, there's a strong growth from organic sources too. GDV from our GPR segment demonstrated strong organic growth. We're up 29% in that segment to finish on 6.3 billion. We particularly saw strong performance in the digital banking, salaries of service, and the government verticals, which were driving that segment results. Our gift and incentives segment saw a significant recovery from the impacts of COVID in the prior year. We saw record first half GDV, uh, and although, although to a lesser extent than in prior periods, uh, we did still see the segment impacted by social distancing restrictions which were introduced in Canada, Germany and the UK in late November and December, which was in response to the Omicron variant. GDV was up 21% on the prior year with more volumes up 26%. Reward and incentive programs grew 4% on the PCP because we had some tougher comparatives with the prior period was benefiting from some non-recurring COVID programs, such as the Diageo program we saw in Ireland uh, in the prior year. So in the early part of half two, we've seen continuing challenging trading conditions, particularly in Germany, where a key customer's service desks remain closed. But we've seen incentive programs perform well, with employers offering digital incentives to try to get employees back into offices. In the digital payment segment, this was our van segment in previous years following the centennial acquisition. We've renamed the segment to sort of better reflect what the segment does. GDV has increased by 431% to $24.4 billion, uh, with the acquisition of Centennial driving 98% of that growth. It, it's pleasing to see the new pay open banking volumes have grown 30% year on year. And this is prior to EML's investments being made to drive additional growth, which is happening now and will be a feature through the FY23 year. They were somewhat bootstrapped in terms of their spend on, on growth initiatives prior to EML acquisitions. As Tom said, the money that we're investing will help drive that forwards into future periods. Moving on to revenue now on slide 27, we, we grew 20% over the PCP to record first half revenues of 114.4 million. The group revenue yield is driven by segment mix. And so that moved to 36 basis points through the consolidation of the Centennial Group. Group revenues exclude uh, $900,000 of non-cash amortization, which is SSB 3 fair value uplift on the bond portfolio. That's an acquisition-related accounting. Um, the majority of our revenues are generated from recurring revenue streams in the GPR segment. Uh, so GPR represented 61% of group revenues in the first half. So we are still a majority GPR business. 
the GPR segment grew wholly organically, 28% revenue growth up to 69.6 million in the in the period. With the segment revenue yield flat at 111 basis per interest revenue and the loss of establishment fee revenue in the half in our regulated businesses. So it had a couple of headwinds it had to overcome in the last six months. For 6% over the prior comparative period, we saw increased volume, improved volumes in the period offsetting the higher breakage rates due to COVID we saw last year. But the restrictions in Germany, Canada and the UK are our expectations for that six-month period. Uh, revenue yield, 408 basis points, is impacted by the timing of revenue recognition. We're carrying over 4.2 million, which will be recognised in half two, and we'll have 15, um, compared to uh, 3.8 million last year. Digital payment segment consolidated 2.7 million of revenue through the acquisition of Centennial and generated 7% of group revenues. The segment is strategically important to the group's growth prospects, with the open banking product Newerpay is expected to get down period. Moving to slide 28 and looking at gross profit margins, we saw margin compression of 5% over the PCP to 66% in interest revenue in the first half. We dropped 2.7 million versus the same period last year to just 600,000 this, this period. That's approximately half the margin compression you've seen. We've guided to this previously. We've been challenged by historically low central bank rates in all of our key markets for some time. More pleasingly, though, in December 2021, and more recently, just a week or so ago in February, we've seen the Bank of England raise the cash rate by 40 basis points in the UK on the GBP. That's going to have an immediate benefit to group earnings in the second half. These moves by the Bank of England are worth more than $2.5 million in annualised interest rates. So they're one of the first central banks to start moving rates, and it's going to have an immediate impact on future interest revenue streams. So the headwinds we've been facing for several years now are already starting to turn. We expect to see further interest rate rises in many of our... We'll talk about this more in review guidance, but on page 36, we've outlined the breakdown of our $2.7 billion float into the currencies in which they're held, and given an estimate of there certainly be a direct beneficiary of interest rate rises, we've got a small amount of debt denominated in euros, and we've got a large liquid float balance that earns its interest. It will be a net beneficiary from interest rate rises. Group gross profit margins were also impacted by a reduction in setup fee revenue due to fee revenue in the second half as new programs gradually launch through this next six-month period. Restrictions only impacted the European operations of prepaid financial business unit that translated into a reduction in the overall GPR segment margins. It's significant because the setup fees convert to gross profit at 100% margin. It's better, both through interest, immediate interest rate rises, impacting interest revenue, but also better in establishment fee income, but then also through a number of initiatives that we've been working on for some in the second half. During our acquisition of PFS, we predicted synergies from the insourcing of payment processing, currently a cost of more than $5 million per annum, and we've been working hard to develop that internal processing platform since we acquired the business. We've now, in the last six months, had successful launches of Northern Ireland Stimulus, which is more than 1.4 million cards, and the Aspen program with the UK Home Office, which has proven the capability of that processing platform. So now we'll see, starting in the next few weeks, volumes from our two, major, two of our major European customers will already start to transition through the second half 
and that will generate at least $3 million of total savings in FY23. We've also agreed price discounts with our key payment schemes in both Australia and Europe. These take effect from 1 January and improve margins through lower transactional costs from our scheme partners. We've commenced reactivation campaigns to encourage customers with dormant accounts to recommence using their accounts. We've also introduced account maintenance fees to offset the increasing costs of compliance and the negative interest rates on our Euro float. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But moving on to slide 29 now and overhead. We're slightly ahead of our guidance range for costs. Uh, we had overheads in the first half, 48.5 million, so 45% of the midpoint of our overheads guidance. We're up 24% on the PCP, and we still expect costs to increase in the second half as new roles recruited in the first half and starting in the second half will impact this future six-month period. It's worth reflecting on the context of the overhead increases, though, and the achievement of the remediation project in the period. So whilst the increase in overheads is significant, the rapid actions taken and the new roles recruited have been essential in regaining the confidence of our regulator. We've demonstrated our commitment to meeting their expectations, and that's led to the path forwards that we announced in November. Without the commitments to these spends, and a significant increase in the spend on people, control, technology overheads, we could have been stuck in a challenging regulatory dialogue with this regulator for a much longer period. Um, the majority of the increase in costs relates to PFS uh, and to a lesser extent the consolidation of Centennial for three months. So the increase in the PFS cost base will support growth in future periods. And so whilst we're at the forefront of some evolving regulatory requirements, we're expecting all industry participants, all of our customers, to face these same challenges in, in the future period. Looking at slide 30, underlying EBITDA, 26.9 million, was down 1.2 million, down slightly on the PCP, as we were unable to entirely offset the impact of the cost increases, the lower interest and less setup fee revenue in the first half, despite strong revenue growth. The slowdown in late November for the gift volumes due to Omicron was really the gap. We're expecting to close it in the second half with the initiatives I outlined earlier. These aren't new initiatives. These have been worked on for over six months, and they were started because it was clear that our cost base in Europe would increase markedly, and we can't sit by and not respond to that. So we've been working on all the levers, on customer pricing, contract renegotiation, and new fees on dormant accounts. We were impacted, as Tom mentioned, by non-recurring fees associated with the CBI remediation project, it's about 2.2 million, and by class action litigation initiated by Shine in late December 2021, so we've taken up a provision. As Tom outlined, Shine lawyers filed group proceedings in the Supreme Court of Victoria in December, and EML will vigorously defend them. We've recognised a $10.5 million provision for the likely legal costs that will be expected to be incurred in defence of these claims. We intend to seek an order for security for such costs from the class action plaintiffs, and we also hold an insurance policy but has not yet reached the necessary accounting criteria for recognition at this time. So including these non-recurring costs, group EBITDA was 14.2 million. But moving to slide 31, we bridged the movements between EBITDA, MPAT, and NPAT A, um, but we still consider nine periods uh, million to better represent the trading performance of the group in the period. Looking at the balance sheet in slide 32, we remain in a very strong balance sheet position. We have $86.2 million in cash on hand, and we have $30 million of breakage accruals, which is the contract asset, of which 64% of this will convert to cash within 12 months. 
As gift and incentive volumes have improved in FY22 year to date, this has led to a working capital outflow into the contract asset as compared to the inflows we saw in FY21 when our volumes were impacted by COVID. We've split out cardholder assets of 2.06 billion and a liability owed to our cardholders of the same amount. These are the amounts held on behalf of our customers uh, and cardholders and the, direct, and the amounts we self-issue uh, for these products under our own licenses. And so it's less than our total float of 2.7 billion, which includes the North American business where it's issued by our partner banks. So when we look at the interest rate potential upside, it's the 2.6 billion that's the more important immediate number that we'll benefit from. Positively, of the 2 billion, uh, that's significantly weighted to GBP, where we're already starting to see interest rates move upwards. Trade receivables grew in the period. We had some delayed receipts of approximately 8.6 million from two customers. We've already received 75% in, in the second half. It's already in our bank. Uh, and the remaining is just a timing difference owed from the Northern Ireland stimulus package, so there's, there's zero risk of non-collection. We don't have an issue with receivables. We typically sit on client funds, uh, so these are just timing issues in the first half that have already corrected themselves in the second half um, as we speak today. Intangibles increased with the acquisition of Centennial and the valuation of their software and goodwill being brought onto our books. So associated with this acquisition was also the drawdown of 48.2 million of interest-bearing borrowings from our banking syndicate in the period. I mentioned the provisions we've taken up. We've got $19.7 million there as at 31st December, and that will fund the expected future costs of the PFS regulatory matter and the legal fees associated with the class action. So try to draw a line under the class action by fully providing for it in this period. On slide 33, we show underlying operating cash flow of $14.7 million, which is impacted by the delayed receipt of those two large customer balances, totaling $8.6 million. As I say, 75% of this has already been received in the second half, so we'll see this come through in the cash flow in the second half. Slides 34 and 35 now thinking about guidance. Underlying guidance for FY20, FY22 is as follows. We're talking revenue of 230 to 250 million. That's up between 18 and 29% on FY21. Still expecting gross profit margins of around 69% for the year. Overheads between 103 to 112 million which is up 34 to 46% FY21. That result of that is underlying EBITDA forecast, which we're maintaining, we're reaffirming our guidance range of 58 to 65 million for the full year FY22. There's obviously some assumptions that underpin that guidance range. We're assuming the gift and seg incentive segment will perform in line with seasonally adjusted trends, so we're not expecting to see uh, a significant impact from COVID-19, a new variant or some other issue crop cropping up with COVID-19. We're implementing opportunities to reduce dormant state balances, including reactivation programs, or which will drive interchange revenue or dormancy fee if the money is not, not reactivated. So subject to finalisation of this initiative, we expect a new recurring revenue stream and we expect a non-recurring catch-up in the second half. These are new fees on dormant accounts, so we're not seeing any pushback on these. There's no competitive pressures there because right, they're dormant accounts and they have been so for, for some, some time. We expect to be able to continue to launch new European programs under our CBI licence, and we don't expect a material impact from the growth directions which have been imposed. Overheads are tracking in line with expectations announced for AGM in November, with higher overheads driven by new roles in Europe to address the CBI matters, higher insurance costs, and higher internal external audit fees. 
data on the potential interest rate benefit. I don't have a crystal ball, but there is a strong rhetoric around interest rate rises at present. So we've provided a breakdown of the cash balances by currency. So investors can really do your own modelling and your own expectations of where you think interest rates are going to go. We obviously have our own views on that. Um, bear in mind, always forecasts are right for the medium term. Um, then in three years, you could see multiples of this. Um, we've seen several years of headwinds from interest rates and FX rates, which follow, follow interest rates primarily. So it's pleasing to see this start to turn into a tailwind in future periods. If you look back on our results from several years ago, interest was, was a much more significant core revenue stream. And so I can't predict the timing, but if we saw 50 basis points rise across the board, seven to eight million, if we achieve the sort of consensus economic forecasts uh, and we see the interest rate rises that the smart economists are predicting, then you could be looking at a 30 million revenue stream in three to five years' time based on current volumes. And so with that, I'll hand it back to the operator to open up for any questions. Thank you very much. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel your request, please press star 2. If you are on a speakerphone, please pick up the handset to ask your question. Had a couple come through from the, the webcast. The first one was um, if interest rates were to rise tomorrow by 1% globally, how quickly will the earnings benefit the grid? It will happen immediately. So it's on the, on the liquid float. So we've broken out our float into liquid as well as the sort of bond investments. Obviously, bonds are fairly fixed. The majority of our portfolio is held, held in liquid. And so you see that start to rise uh, immediately. The first question comes from Stephen Kwok from KW, KBW. Please go ahead. Hi. Morning. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. I guess just the first one I have was just around the, the CPI investigation. Did you mention that you know, in June you, you'll uh, have more? I guess, like, what, what are the steps going forward in June if everything is remediated? Is that the end of the investigation? Uh, and there's, you know, that you can continue to grow and um, sign up new clients. Just wanted to get a clarification on the CBI side. Thanks. Yeah, that, that, that's Tom Cregan speaking. Yeah, that, that's correct. So the the plan the plan has always been for us to, to implement uh, the, the, the full steps in the remediation plan by June 30. Now, include, included within that is uh, customer notification. So if you're changing um, limits to certain customer programs or changing terms and conditions that requires a, a 60 day uh, notification to to comply with consumer law in, in most countries um, so that is included within that time frame and the, the process is really that the the remediation plan is is uh, completed internally and then gets independently uh, Reviewed in in what's just called an independent assurance process. So that uh, so the, the the first step is the board of, of PCSIL um, sign the remediation plan off as having been fully implemented. It then goes through a, a kind of independent assurance uh, uh, you know process, which uh, just validates that all of the all of the steps um, 
and, and you know, changes have been made, uh, and then effectively the program is is uh, is over because by at that, at that point the CBI's expectation is that it's then what they would call internalised, and so all of that, um, all of those changes to policies and procedures and and so forth are then part of the BAU, not part of of an ongoing uh, you know remediation plan. We are, we are able to, I mean, obviously, you know, Banker Sabadell and others, so we are um, um, signing other customers in Europe as we speak, and we're able to, to put those forward um, to the CBI for approval, as well as the ones that were launched, uh, you know, late, late last year. So, I mean, I think the good news is kind of competitively, you know, we're, we're, not, um, we're not kind of, you know, stuck in the concrete there. We're able to... We're able to you know, talk talk to customers and and um, and, and actively prospect and and sign. I don't think I'll, I'll just make one point that I made before, and, and part of this is um, uh, luck and you know good fortune. But the the nature of this of this industry in terms of the sales cycles mean that um, you know when when we received notification in May, the the original notification from from the CBI. Um, there, there were obviously these these programs that had already been signed that were waiting kind of implementation. For for those customers, you know, it's obviously not ideal that they have to wait to launch them. But in in their shoes, they they would have had a couple of options, and one of those options was to wait and and to uh, you know trust us to uh, get the issues resolved and get their programs live, or to go and find an alternative provider. But in doing so. Uh, you're then starting the process again. So you're then having to find a different provider, redo all of your technical integration work, uh, which might take six to 12 months. So we didn't see any real defection of signed customers because they were in that, I guess, in that between stage where it was just just uh, easier for them to uh, work with us and expect us to, to get their program live. Similarly, for new business that you're signing, um, that the, the CBI have, um, and most regulators have, to approve uh, new customers. So if we were signing customers today uh, and putting that forward, there's, there's no expectation really of that customer that uh, it would be any less than 90 days right, to get regulatory approval. And obviously that customer then has development work on their side. So on average, that, that, that's a kind of a six to seven month process for the customer to do work, uh, the, the development work on their end. So, again, uh, I think our, our prospects and the customers are in the pipeline, you know, just expected us to have this done uh, and, and have the remediation plan done uh, such that it wouldn't impact the, the, the timings of their launch. And, you know, uh, that, that's, 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 where it, that's where it sits. Got it. And I had a follow-up question around just the guidance. Um, as we looked at the first half results, and I was just wondering, like, how much was, like, the Omicron impact, and then you kept the guidance the same. So I was thinking of relative to your prior guidance, like, what are some of the new um, things you've implemented? I think you've called out, like, the acquiring fees, the dormant fees. Were those back into your previous guidance? I was just wondering to see, like, know, how much of a headwind did you have, and then, you know, where were the areas of offset to get you back to your guidance for the whole year? Thanks. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, I mean, the 
the Omicron impact is always very hard to say what volumes you didn't see come through. But I mean, based on the run rates that we were seeing through November, um, which you, you've got Black Friday going in there through the, for the sales there, so you've got a, a decent amount of lift of volume going through. We, we'd estimate it's around about $100 million of volume. So that's about $6 million of revenue, just under $5 million of GP that was the headwind, we think, from Omicron through last week in November through first three weeks, you know, through to Christmas in, in December. Um, that's the headwind. How have we offset that? I mean, I think we've factored in an element of, um, of dormancy fees, but I think it's, it's going, the project's progressing well. It's, it's a complicated project. You're working on multiple countries to work with consumer law on, so we're, that's progressing better than and faster than expected. We've seen interest rate rises are going um, as faster than expected. I mean, the Bank of England probably moved faster than most economic forecasters who are, who are typically quite conservative, uh, and that will immediately benefit earnings. Um, and we had factored in the, the MasterCard agreement uh, in Australia. And so, I mean, partially built into guidance previously, we'd, we'd, we'd obviously left ourselves some, some wiggle room for things not happening exactly to plan. You know, you sort of, I think most, most investors have heard me talk about don't bank on 365 days of sunshine. And I think that's, that's really what you're seeing there. So, yeah, we definitely... We're a little bit disappointed in terms of the GDV in uh, three from malls, but the, the actions that we can control have been going better than expected, and that's what we can focus on, what we, what we can do. Great. Thanks for taking my question. No problem. There's been a couple of questions as well on uh, interest through the, through the chat, which I can probably roll into a little bit more dialogue, and, and, and while part of it is we've got a $2.7 billion float, a 1% rise doesn't seem to correlate directly to $27 million. Either. It doesn't because of the US dollar float, which we don't earn interest until we until the US central bank rate goes above 2%, um, and so that's the big gap, and then there's uh, Canadian, I think it's 65 70% of the, of the interest we get to keep. So um, there's some nuances in that. Um, but broadly, you know, if you took $2 billion of, our, of the amount that's on our balance sheet, we get the interest rate benefit on that immediately, washing through. So we're already starting to see improved interest uh, on our GBP balances, which is a, a significant part of that flow that's already coming through now. Thank you. The next question comes from Elijah Mir from CLSA. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for the questions. Um, just firstly, um, could we just uh, sort of go into a bit more detail on the overheads, um, uh, I guess, going into sort of the full-year guidance that's implying, I guess, around 60 mil for second half, 22. Can you sort of maybe give us a bit of colour on how you expect that to um, progress in third quarter and fourth quarter? Just trying to get a sense of what that exit rate for overheads will be towards the, um, towards the end of uh, financial year 22. Yeah, I think your exit rate is going to be your second half run rate. I mean, the, you've got you're consolidating up centennials overheads for a full uh, full six month period, not three month period. That's that's part of your lift. Uh, we're also investing heavily in in the newer pay product and, and building out open banking uh, position in that market as well. So that that's part of the lift. And then finally, you've got you know the roles Tom's called out. You know, a new head of compliance is is a significant. The, you know, the reasonably expensive roles that we're putting in place. And so that's really your run rate through. If you took your F, your second half OPEX run rate, that's your run rate through into FY23. Thanks. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. Thanks,
Yeah, when, when I think Elijah, when when we're hiring the people that we've hired in 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 Europe in that in that space. So just for the benefit of of most on the call, so regulated businesses over there uh, uh, have uh, what they call PCF functions, so control functions. So the CFO will be a designated uh, PCF. Your head of compliance will be a de designated PCF. Uh, any any of those PCF roles have to be approved by the regulator. And so what we've done is hire some, some really seasoned people um, who have been in industry for a long time, have had, had held multiple uh, PCF roles, you know, a, a across across uh, different companies in the industry, so that they're basically uh, already known to the to the regulator, right? Because they would have they would have worked with them in in various various roles. So some some of these people we've hired have, have got you know 20 year uh, track records. You know, they're not cheap, right? But at the end of the day, that's not that's not really the point. You know, we're hiring we're hiring people there. Um, to the now, and so the other thing I would say is we, historically, whenever we've looked at, at adding, you know, senior execs into the business or growing expense in some part of the business, we've always looked at, you know, how do you self-fund that, right? But th this first half is not a period to think about self-funding. We, we could have been really, really cute and, and said, you know, how do we minimise, you know, overhead, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, additions and... Uh, but that wouldn't have got us back in business with new programs in December, and that's really the, the crux, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not going to worry too much about overheads in a half versus our long-term competitive position, which would be impacted if you were unable to launch programs and unable to sign, you know, new new customers. So, you know, the run rate as our June will include those those individuals, um, and so that 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 will be the the starting point. But you're not going to see, uh, you know, the same kind of growth in well, Centennial will be will be net new, which which you'll have to model. But after that, you know, I think the the kind of expense growth will will just return to what the historical levels were previously. I think that's key because you're going to see, you know, we've managed to maintain strong revenue growth. We're up 29% in the GPR business. Um, you can outgrow a a step change in this overhead base from the FY22 year. Um, you can outgrow that, um, and so this is unusual. We've had a strong track record of um, you know, holding the line on, on in terms of leverage on our cost basis the first year that we've had to put in, in place a pretty significant increase um, but we've managed to maintain the revenue growth so the overheads will correct themselves over time. Yep, I appreciate the colour and then maybe a second one uh, just on the sales pipeline uh, increased to in terms of the projected three to four year GDV uh, to 13.6 bill from I think previously it was 10.5 bill. Uh, this period seems to be including um, including Centennial. Can you give us yep. a sense of that 13.6? Uh, uh, how much of that is sort of from underlying uh, the underlying pipeline, and how much Centennial I guess contributes to that projected GDV? Yes, the, the, the prepaid uh, section is probably in the 10 range, and, and Centennial will be three and a half in that in that kind of magnitude. So if you look at the pipeline, you know, if you went back a year ago, we we would have had um, you know call it 10 billion in the pipeline. You've got a 40% win rate. Um, you know, our GDP this year this year is up 20 to 40%. So you've always got conversion of what you said a year ago kind of coming through, um, and then you've got your future conversion, you know, coming through as well. So 
yeah, the prepaid side would be around the 10 mark and, and Centennial would be in the, in the three and a bit mark, I think. No problem. I'll pause it there and let some other questions come through. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The next question comes from Tim Plum from UBS. Please go ahead. Hi guys, just a couple of questions from me, if that's all right, uh, and and largely follow-ups from Elijah. But um, we spoke about the uplift in costs, Tom. How do we think about the operating leverage opportunity for this business in FY23 and beyond? Now that you've had a, an extremely material uplift in FY22, um, you know, are, is there significant further investment that's required, or should you get pretty strong operating leverage with top-line growth thereafter? Yeah, look, I just think our expenses will just come back to their normal uh, cadence. I mean, you're not going to have, um, you know, the, the the cost of remediation, which, um, you know, from a cash flow, I mean, we obviously uh, provisioned them last year, but from a cash flow point of view, you know, it's still pretty significant. Um, and so I think by the end of by the end of June, you've really got the the kind of Europe business kind of rebased. I would think, you know, with, with the increased Costs around that. Um, the rest of it, the rest of our business is, uh, you know, is on is on budget for opex and just in line with with normal historical standards. So I think, I think you look when you look at leverage, you look at things like, um, you know, processing savings being banked next year, which we're pretty confident of because, you know, uh, when your two largest customers are migrating in April, then you, you, then it becomes, you know. Uh, more definitive that you're going to obtain those savings in the next couple of years. And when we bought when we bought PFS, um, you know, we, we said there was about six million bucks of third-party processing savings, but you know, it's still 3.2 million you know uh, pounds a year as we as we as we as we sit here, right? So there's you know, given exchange rate 6.7, you know, something of that magnitude, Aussie million. So you start to get that you know leverage come through. Uh, interest rates will give us leverage that that, you know, that we haven't had before. In fact, if you just take a quarter on, if you just take a half on half, um, you know we we you know we had to eat 2.7 of negative net interest, which we had, we didn't have to eat the in the prior comparative period because we weren't European regulated, right? So we only moved to we had, it was Brexit, so we'd only moved there in December. So you didn't you, you didn't have 2.7 million to of of both revenue and margin. To out, you know, to um, you know, which we've had to outrun in, in this first half, you know, but obviously you can't outrun it because it's, it, it, you know, it is what it is. So you've got to find ways of addressing that. So part of that is is, is uh, interest rate recovery. Part of that is bond uh, purchases that we we talked about earlier, which had about a million bucks in the in in the second half. So you start to get that, uh, you know, you start to get that coming through. Um, so that's that's where some of that. Leverage comes if you're growing revenue at 20, 25 percent, and you're starting to, um, you know, you just get back to a more of a normal cost opex cadence. Then I start, I think, you know, and you get margin improvement from those from those items. I think you start to see the the uh, the EBITDA margins kind of move up accordingly. Got it. And then just the second one to follow up in terms of the sales pipeline. Um, 
maybe are you able to give any colour in terms of potential new vertical opportunities that sit within that bucket or how we should think about the, the timing around that potential sales pipeline? And is there a significant portion of that, that that should come up for decision making over the next six months? I don't know about significant portion, but I mean we're 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 kind of um, I know it'll sound a bit uh, it'll sound a bit cheesy, but we're, you know if we were doing this call in a month's time, we might have a few more to to announce that uh, that um, uh, you know we we certainly think uh, material opportunities that um, you know were in the pipeline last year because we often get asked you know out of a out of a ten billion pipeline uh, you know what are the bigger Opportunities within that. There's always ones that are that are smaller, and there's there's always ones that are larger. Right, it's a bell curve. But um, you know, on the on the newer pay side, you know, I think in the next kind of couple of months, six weeks, you know, they, they've they've got some uh, you know pretty sizable uh, deals that I think would be ASX worthy of, of announcement um, uh, in terms of in terms of materiality. Uh, on the prepaid side, I'd expect uh, a couple as well. You know, in the next um, uh, I'll say I'll, I'll say in the next month that are that are uh, ASX worthy. Obviously, the more, the more deals, the more customers we have, uh, you know, you, you can't you, you can't use the ASX as a as a marketing platform, right? So you can't go and put every every um, every new deal on there because they, they'll just knock you back. But uh, I'll, I'd be surprised if we don't have um, you know probably probably four announcements in the next month. So I said, yeah, in, in, a, in a month's time, we would have had a few, a few others. Uh, and the key, the key, that they are, they are, they're, uh, I'll just say, more sizable. And, and you know, if you can get them in, then obviously you're getting, um, you know, they're the, they're the kind of how would I call it, the, not, not, not foundational, but they're, um, you know, but they're the ones that scale you quicker, right? I mean, you can add, you can add a lot of programs. That you know, in in uh, you know year year two, uh, you, know, uh, you know, might be ten twenty million, or you can add some that could be two, three, four hundred. And obviously, they're the ones that we're we're uh, we're aiming for. So, I, I think I think it's a bit of a watch this space, but um, but in the next month, I'd expect I'd expect we have uh, three or four. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry, just in terms of any colour you can give us in terms of new vertical opportunities that sit within that pipeline, or should we be thinking similar verticals that you're already servicing, such as neobanks, um, game, online gaming, etc.? Online gaming, yeah, I think, on, well, I mean, uh, the, the, I'll, I'll go to Europay first, then I'll do the, the GPR piece, but certainly on, on Europay, um, it's, um, you know, it covers uh, acquirers, it covers uh, aggregators, it covers payment gateways who want to use uh, open banking services because their merchants are, are asking them to to um, to have open banking uh, you know services available, um, and they're expecting that uh, at a lower cost, right? So you've got kind of competitive uh, uh, tension there, right? So you, uh, there was a company yesterday called Banked. Which we we'd looked at as a FinLabs investment before um, deciding to acquire um, uh, Centennial, but I mean they raised 20 million. Their key customer is Bank of America, so you've got Bank of America, um, you know, looking at uh, adding open banking into their kind of merchant services, uh, the same way that that NewerPay has done with Alavon, City, WorldPay, and a bunch of others, and so they're making 
uh, you know, safe charge, etc. So they're making good progress on, on on getting through there. So that that will be, you know, the, the, the kind of decent ones on the on the newer pay side. On the prepaid side, honestly, it's still pretty it's still pretty varied. Like um, there's one that I that I can't go into, but I will go into when we announce it, which is a new. Uh, it'll be the first time we've been we've we've gone into that vertical um, in Europe. But it, it, it's probably a, it'll probably be our largest vertical by opportunity size, uh, and there's a lot of data on it, um, and uh, and therefore you know we can provide some more colour on that when that when that gets announced. Um, but yeah, uh, you know earned wage access, you know several several customers in that space, uh, you know digital lending. Uh, I mean you know as we as we sat here, you know we signed. Uh, Tom and Rob, a couple of quick questions on reloadables and also supply chain and wage costs. Reloadables, um, some of those three verticals you called out, gaming, salary, packaging and government, any tailwinds or headwinds that you see for those verticals in the next 12 months? No, not really. I mean, I think, you know, gaming is always um, pretty resilient, right, to, to, to most of those, <laughs> to most cycles. Uh, um, we, we didn't call it out in the deck, but we just we already had, you know, Bet365 as a customer in the in uh, the UK, and we've launched it in, into Italy and Spain. So, you know, you've got you've got customers that are kind of increasing uh, or, or launching it in different uh, in different countries. But I don't really see any good, bad, good times, bad times. I think I think gaming is a pretty resilient, uh, you know, business. In earned wage access is 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 brand new. I think I said last year that I think. In years to come, it'll change the way all of us get paid. I mean, this concept of you get paid once a month uh, because that's just convenient for your payroll team is 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 uh, gone. Right now, you're, you've seen lots of companies attack that vertical in different ways. So you've seen companies that are attacking it as a as a quasi lender, you know, kind of lending you money against your uh, against your you know future payroll. Um, We've got, or they're they're more of a platform provider, so you know an HR uh, ERP system that uh, that has payroll functionality that's added in uh, earned wage access and won't won't charge for your salary to be drawn down because they'll make their money on the SAS fee on the on on the platform itself, right? So um, yeah, one one of our larger opportunities uh, in the next month will be in that in that space. Um, and, and, and early days, but my, my just my gut feel is that um, that platforms will will win out in that in that space. I, I just think that um, charging charging people to access their, their their salary, I think, won't stand the long term test of of of, uh, of regulators and, and what have you. Certainly in the US and different states, you can't do that because labour laws would preclude you doing that. So. 
um, you know, I think I think the platforms are the way to go. We've, we're uh, you know we're certainly pretty active in that space. Um, so excited about that. Uh, government, I don't see any real real change in that in that position going forward. Uh, Northern Ireland was obviously one of our larger um, stimulus programs, but we're talking to other governments about about similar programs. Um, the Northern Ireland government was was pretty. Uh, was excellent actually in terms of promoting the success of that of that program. So there was a, a just a ton of media in Europe on that, which which has driven uh, you know inquiry from other governments in different countries. So you know that, that's positive for us. So no, I don't really see any any segments that are that are kind of subject to any any uh, you know kind of economic headwinds. I mean, not us for obviously sees any, but I no, I think I think what I'd add is that. You know, we've reiterated for a while that we've got incredibly low customer churn. I mean, it's fractions of 1% um, over a three-year cycle. It's a very low customer churn. And so when you've got GDV and revenue growth and GPR segment of just under 30%, you will always see a larger second half to a first half. That's the normal trend of our results, is a bigger second half to first half. Um, so I don't see any particular headwinds, but I also see that you're building off a bigger base. So all the programs that we've been adding in the first half will contribute more to the second half than the first and so on. So, um, you know, salary packaging vertically in Australia is it's incredibly resilient. It's doctors and nurses payroll. Is it? So, no, I don't really see any, any macroeconomic um, headwinds. I, I see a lot of benefits. I see a lot of benefit from interest rates. Uh, and I see a benefit from FX rates on the back of the interest rates too. I mean, if you look at the GBP, the Bank of England now 25 basis point increase and in the exchange rates moved from a 1.8 to 1.9 um, on the back of that um, and we've got a significant amount of offshore earnings. So we faced headwinds for a number of years which sort of been, you know, we've outgrown uh, largely in previous years. Uh, now we're going to get some tailwinds which is, which is going to be helpful. Thank you. Uh, last two questions uh, on supply chain. Uh, any shortage issues for plastics or physical cards or any increased costs that we should uh, factor into for the second half of 22 and 23? And uh, I guess a similar question in relation to wage costs. Thank you. Uh, no, no on the plastics. So we did, we did, uh, we did hear of, of some companies that were struggling to uh, source cards in, um, you know, in, in the US in particular, but uh, we haven't had an issue. I think just given the amount, the amount we buy. Um, you know our suppliers that are that are global suppliers like GND, uh, you know really prioritise our our, uh, our business uh, and pay a lot of attention to it. So no, no issues on that front. Um, on, on the wages front, no, it's not really um, it's not really uh, disruption. I would say. I mean, I think most companies are seeing uh, you know more turnover from uh, you know from staff. You know this kind of so-called you know great resignation uh, 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 thing and you know uh, and, and pay is under uh, pressure I mean I think I was talking to someone uh, well, recently in the last week who you know was did, didn't work for us but was in an HR role on 135 and got uh, recruited for 250 right so you, you're seeing that happen but we just don't pay those salaries right? I mean, that's, so we wouldn't be hiring that person so I mean, our, our REM structures are pretty are pretty fixed. Uh, we've just got to work within them. Uh, so, you know, in some cases that might mean you see a bit more turnover because you're hiring people and 
um, and a year a year later they're getting they're getting poached for more money. Uh, that's okay, but we, we can't really compromise the the REM framework, or we'll just be we'll just be chasing tail, you know, non-stop. So um, uh, I think it's a reality out there, but it's not really influencing the the, the way we're paying people. Mr. Sheriff, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thanks. Before we before Thank we go you. to the next one on the call, maybe we'll just quickly do one from the from the chat that's come through, Tom, on the question about are the CBI uh, approving any new programs and what are the impact of the material growth restrictions? Yeah. So the the, the uh, material growth is uh, in place until October, um, which is. Uh, uh, December, I beg your pardon, early December, and we, we we haven't gone into detail with the market around what that restriction is and how it would, um, you know, kind of impact our business. What we said last year and what we have done is um, create, if you think about it, like a professional sports team, create salary cap space by um, exiting certain programs that had significant volume but very low yield um, in order to replace that volume with higher yielding uh, you know, programs. Um, so we have done that uh, and created, you know, created uh, significant enough space, put it that way, that uh, you know, our, our, you know, we don't see any, any uh, 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 likelihood of uh, exceeding of, of having that impact our business for this calendar year, we think we'll, we'll be able to operate under that material growth policy, uh, but obviously continue to grow our business organically with the customers we have, uh, as well as add new business. I think the, question, the second question was, you know, are we submitting new contracts? We are. So as as we're signing new contracts and they're going through a, a kind of revised risk review process. Um, you know, we will be submitting them. They, uh, as I said before, there's, there's uh, 90 days that the regulator has to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, approve those programs. So that's pretty standard, whether in, in with different regulators in in Europe. Um, so you wouldn't see new business having been approved because we wouldn't have even submitted it until January. So I think you'll be looking for that in kind of the March April you know, time frame. The, you know, in order not to be kind of you know, tone deaf, if I can call it that, uh, you know, to, to the regulator. Um, we, you know, our, our agreement is that we will only uh, put in or only submit programs that, uh, you know, that kind of meet a certain risk threshold. And when I say that, it's more, um, it's not, it's not uh, financial risk or anything like that. It's just the kind of uh, the framework of how programs are assessed uh, in Europe, and and so most of the programs that we'll be submitting are, are going to be pretty vanilla, if I can say that, in terms of the countries in which they're in, uh, which removes you know kind of geopolitical risk as a you know as a consideration. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff we're, we're you know we're doing there, but long and short of it is we, we don't see that um, you know based on programs that you know we expect to sign and the pipeline we're in. That we would we would have that at that the 
that that material growth restriction would be an impediment to us. Thanks, Tom. I mean, the operator, do you want to go back to a question from the phone? Thank you. The next question comes from William Cunning from Carabar Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, Tom. Rob, uh, thanks for all the provided so far. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions. Just firstly, just um, could you maybe provide a bit of color just on your outlook for the multi-currency business? Just as we look at sort of travel resuming, especially around Europe, I think that business used to do maybe $120 million volumes, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, what? How much of that is sort of baked into the second half, and maybe how can we think about that going into FY23? Yeah, not not much is baked into the into the second half. It's really a, a kind of a very heavily skewed. I mean, last part of June, but far more skewed in uh, in July and August. Um, with because in our multi currency programs, I mean, we signed um, you know a, a large customer that used to be a wire card, uh, you know, a customer called Volley, which we signed last year. Uh, but obviously, the, the volumes of that one you know, just haven't come come through. And a lot of the programs, if you look at Centrip and Volley and, and, and these type of programs, a lot of them are um, uh, have like uh, expense management solutions for people that, that are in the travel industry. So, for example, both Centrip and, and Volley, uh, you're talking about uh, corporate expense cards, for want of a better word, that... Uh, that are multi-currency for shipping operators and people that run yacht fleets and yacht rentals and things like that all throughout Europe in those in those kind of summer months. Uh, you got Avios, which is obviously a, a, a more of a B two C model, um, uh, which I think will do, you know, will do far better. I mean, really, last year it didn't do anything because of because of restrictions, but uh, you know, I think you're going to expect to see that better. So, you know, travel cards really since we bought PFS. Um, you know, that was about 10% of their of their earnings, and that uh, disappeared with, with the advent of, of of COVID. But I think that you know we'd be looking forward to that coming back in FY23. We just haven't had that in the in the last two years. So again, probably back to one of the previous questions. I mean, if we see that as as a bit of upside, a bit of leverage too, given the margins are uh, you know are higher in that in that in that product segment. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that. And I guess that sort of feeds in perfectly to my next question. Just on the GPR business, just the whole combined business, should we see some degree of, of revenue margin uplift? You know, if we think about the, the maybe faster-growing programs of U.S. gaming, obviously multi-currency, my understanding was is that they transacted a higher margin than maybe some of the other programs that you've got. Should we see that maybe progressively build year-on-year year from, from 23 to 24? Uh, look, I think it'll build, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be putting any real aggressive forecasts in, 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 into the yield because the yield is just a is just a, a mix of, um, of of different of different programs, right? So if you looked at, um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you, gaming in, in the US is is higher than gaming elsewhere for us because of the because of interchange rates. Um, mm. So you've got you've got you know, benefits in certain markets, um, you know, programs in Australia, and we might do some of these overseas that that are salary packaging programs that are more fixed uh, price models, if you like. So you're charging, a, you know, a fee per month for the card, irrespective of volume. Um, obviously changes the, you know, changes the yield. 
you've got government programs, you know, in, in certain mar in certain uh, in the UK, for example, where um, the program might be 40 basis points, but part of our earnings stream is uh, more more funds are pre-deposited with us by the government, which we then invest in government bonds, and so the collective uh, the, the collective gets you to the same number of of yield. So where, where the where the yield is, I, I, I would I would kind of keep it steady, or I, I would I would slightly increase it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be um, wouldn't be going too crazy because even even in with multi currency that's that's you know north of two hundred bips, um, you know it's ten it's, it, it was ten percent of PFS when we bought it. PFS is obviously a much bigger business now, so it might be five, it might be now five percent. So it's kind of um, it, it, it'll move the needle a little bit, but not 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 usually. Yep. Sorry. Thanks for that. Um, and then I guess my final question is just on the newer pay business. I mean, you've had that for a couple of months now. Um, just off the back of COVID and what you've seen in, in sort of uptake in open banking, do you have any more sort of learnings from that over the last couple of months or, or any sort of improved view on the open banking market going forward? Yeah, look, I was, we were all pretty bullish anyway because it was our first our first acquisition, I think, that was uh, that was done uh, obviously tie, tied into our to our Project accelerator strategy, but you know you're buying a business without any earnings, right? Which isn't isn't kind of historically, you know, what we had done. And buying a business that was undercapitalized, that required um, it required two things: it required just funds for growth, and it required um, someone like us with bigger scale um, to leverage. Um, you know, so in, in, instead of um, them building out their business and having to hire people in finance, they can leverage. You know, people that are already in the email finance team or the IT area, or, or so on. But look, I, I just think, in a simplistic way, because I'll, I'll be a salesman for it, because you know, <laughs> I'm a believer and I led that acquisition. But I just reckon you've got to look at where I call it the smart money is going into that place, right? I mean, when, when Trulay raised, you know, 100 million dollars, uh, you know, Go Cardless raised 312 million. I think they raised 190 million. I think the last time. And you look at the PE investors that are in there. I mean, they're no fools, right? So they're they're seeing this as a as a ten year um, transformational way in the way people pay. It's not there today, but that's why they get in early, right? So they can they can reap the value of that. So I think we're we're you know I, I take a lot of comfort out of that um, because they see you know huge growth prospects for those you know companies that are in the market, um, you know, and so do we. Um, you know the the uh, and I think some of the things that they're working on. Um, are really going to come to fruition, right? I mean, when you're, um, I said one of these ones we, we we hope to announce kind of early, you know early April, all, all things being equal. But um, you can you know you've got different competitors there with different strategies. So you've got some that focus more on the data side of the equation. Um, so a company like Trustly, for example, which uh, they probably I'll, I'll I'll describe their business. They would describe it differently, but yeah, you know, they make a lot of money out of account verification. So, you know, Spotify, Netflix, Disney. So when you go for a subscription, uh, you know, payment, they're kind of validating you, and they're validating that you've got money in your bank and money in your card and so forth. And for which they get a they get a fee. Uh, you've got other companies that are that are that like Newerpay that make more money out of the out of the actual physical, you know, transference of funds. But there's there's so many opportunities in that space. Um, that that uh, to me just have a perfect fit, and things that aren't 
competitive to to us. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, crypto payments, for example. Uh, regulators are, are more and more um, interested in money going into a crypto exchange from a bank account, so they know where the money came from, mm-hmm. and they're more interested in when the individual individual withdraws money from that crypto account that it goes back to their bank account. So, you know, that program, uh, our card doesn't really fit the use case for that because our card kind of sits to the side. It's, you know, uh, not it's not a core um, in our bank account. So I just see use cases evolving over time for that business. Things they're not even doing now, subscription payments and other things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm as bullish as I was when we when we bought it. The biggest thing I'm, I'm bullish about, I mean, you, you know, we've had it three months or four months, so it's kind of, you know, early days. But you, you always know whether these acquisitions are going to work within the first 90 days because if you buy them and everyone's, everyone's nice to you when they're selling the business, right, because they, 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 want, they want the check and that's just the way it goes. Once you own it, um, you get a sense of just how the, 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 the people will integrate um, and the culture and so forth. And the team there have been have been fantastic. I mean, you just don't see uh, fiefdoms. You, you see them really wanting to be part of a of a growth driver for EML. You've got you've got um, you know uh, by the end of June, I think we would have kind of integrated their IT teams and finance teams and HR teams into the broader you know European business. You don't see any you know politics or any rubbish. They just want to get on with it. And and to me, that's that's what gives me hope. Like if if, I, if we'd spent the first ninety days haggling on, uh, you know, roles and what my job title is and all that stuff, you go, oh my god, you know, this is not, this doesn't all go well. Uh, it's totally the opposite. You know, they're they're action oriented. They're really good. They're, they've got some great people and they're just hungry. And that's that's exactly the kind of business we need. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for that. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Thank you. The next question comes from Brandon Carrick from Macquarie. Please go ahead. Uh, good uh, good morning, everyone. Um, look, I'll just make a quick follow-up, really. So m- my question was just on the CBI. So around the independent sign-off that you were looking to potentially get, um, is, is that still a prospect, or, or, Tom, your comments about the material growth uh, limitations being in place until December, does that effectively negate the potential for that independent sign-off for the CBI? Um, remediation plan. No, no, we'll still do that. It's the the, the sign-off is just part and parcel of the um, of, of the program. So the the uh, yeah, so that that that'll go in. Uh, you know, I don't, that's that's not going to be huge cost. I mean, if we're spent million, you know, in 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 round terms, it might be 150 grand or something like that for that 150 couple, couple hundred grand for that independent assurance. So it's not not a crazy number. Um, does but that not then, if, if, in, if in when you get that, say, I don't know, in the next couple of months, um, why then would the material growth limitations need to be in place until December yep. um, of this year? Yeah, and the, 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 it's, it's possible that they're not, but, but you know, the, so the CBI have said that they're willing to, um, you know, to review that, right? So if, if when we get to June 30 and when that program is, is complete, um, and has been signed off, then we're fully able to go back to the CBI at that point and try to have it removed. So that that option's there, and has been acknowledged by the by the regulator that we're entitled to to try and do that at the at the at, at the time. So um, 
you know, it's probably the best the, the best way of answering that. So I think we probably would do that, but you know, uh, as it stands, it, the kind of that restriction is there until until early December. Okay, um, and then just a quick follow up on Centennial. So the the EBITDA contribution for the first three months was effectively zero, um, and then the guidance to zero to minus three loss. Um, yep. So then, is it fair to assume that yeah, then now the the spend I guess steps up, um, given the guidance range for the remainder of of, of the guidance period, uh, and then um, I mean just following on from the comments earlier. Is it reasonable to assume that, that we should start to see a bit of a tick up in, in FY23 or because the counter argument to, to your sort of optimistic comments about money flowing into the sector is actually that it's becoming more competitive and, and actually you know, might, might be more difficult to continue to win new clients and, and to gain momentum in the space? No way, mate. This, this thing's the start of a 10-year play. I mean, it's just miles and miles ahead of any any competitive saturation coming apart. I mean, you're talking about, if you think about, uh, this is the way I look at, at our businesses of, you know, prepaid is inherently a niche business. I mean, you've got different niche applications and use cases in gaming and salary packaging and so forth, right? And because and, and this wouldn't be just us, but it's our competitors as well. Because it's niche, you know, you see uh, yields in the, in, the, in the realm that we make because companies have got to have a, of a business model. When you start looking at open banking, you're just talking about you're talking about the total size of banking payments um, in a region. This is just astronomical. So uh, I, I don't think I don't think that um, I think it'd be years before we're worried about you know kind of competitive tension or saturation. And you've got different companies targeting it in a different way. So as I said, you've got Trustly, who have a who have a go to market strategy. True Layer, who who are really good, uh, look like a pretty good business. Um, who uh, you know who have um, uh, you know built built a reasonable volume? I think GoCardless have, have, have done well. GoCardless typically um, look after small merchants, so they have an integration with Zero, for example, right? So they're providing open banking services for small businesses that are that are attached to those platforms. Um, so it's just it's just miles miles too early to worry about consolidation and competitive tension and all that kind well, of stuff. Can I, can I ask then just about how the rollout at WorldPay is going from their perspective? Because if they then push it out to all of their merchants, obviously that's a volume uplift from the newer pay perspective. So how's that progressing? Yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll probably update that in a in a month or so, I think. But the uh, along with um, uh, with all of them, right, with Alavon and City and, and others, and, and what we are doing and what they are doing um, is obviously looking for for their merchants that have sizable volume because that's the way to get to get benefit for, for both parties, right? So, you know, with WorldPay, we're we're not out there, um, you know, kind of in, incentivising their reps to go and target the corner store who might be using WorldPay. It, it, it's kind of working with WorldPay to look at their their um, uh, you know kind of enterprise clients within their own portfolio and the same for. City and the same for Elevon and the same for, for um, you know, uh, what's now Nuvi, which is the Canadian uh, business that bought SafeCharge. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's what we'll start to see. And so I think that the programs that will come through will, will be will be names that people recognise um, and, and the volume is going to be sizable. But it's, it's 
it's just, it's just early on, and it's um, it's open slather as far as I'm concerned. The, the key the key to success over that long term is not going to be well. First of all, it's, it's how many banks are you integrated to. So if you look at, I think TrueLayer. Don't quote me on this number. It's just one that's in my memory, but I think they were quoting that they're integrated to three and a half thousand banks. Um, uh, can't recall. So just use that. I can't recall the numbers for for the competitors. Uh, Newer Pay is connected to about twenty one, twenty two hundred, uh, and uh, you know expanding rapidly, and will work with other companies that have bank that already have connectivity to banks to try to get to that same number by you know by June. So you've got to you've got to have the, you've got to have the table stakes, which is bank integrations. But I think their tech and their and their solutions are. Uh, uh, are really good. Now, that, when we bought it, I, I think I said this at the time, um, you know, one of our institutional investors in, in Australia you know, rang, WorldPay, rang WorldPay and said, why did you, you know, work with, with Europay? And they said, uh, really great at engineering, really shit at sales and marketing. And that was exactly what we wanted to hear because when you're doing the volumes they're doing, you know, you want world-class payments infrastructure and engineering. Um, and hopefully we had the we had the kind of icing on the cake on the on the sales and marketing piece, but um, yeah, early days. I, I think we've got uh, it's just upside as far as I'm concerned. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank I think you. we're going to have to uh, we'll have to wrap it up. I think we're running out of time, but um, definitely appreciate everyone taking the time to talk to us today, and sort of look forward to talking to many of the people on the call later through the week. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Much appreciated. Thank you. So should we conclude? Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude our conference for today. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.